Um, if you're here this afternoon, you'll know that we'll be uh, considering an Old Testament passage from the book of Isaiah, but we're in the New Testament this morning. And the first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. There are 28 chapters in all, and we're going to be considering uh, a passage from Matthew chapter 26. Now, if you were here last week, you noted that uh, we considered uh, a very interesting story simply called in Christian circles uh, Jesus' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm not going to go through a view of that right now, but I said to you last week that the second passage that we are going to consider in this brief Lenten series that is leading us to the Good Friday service is we're going to be considering what is a, a well-known story in Christian circles known as Jesus' experiences in what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. So I'm going to draw your attention to that story now from Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to begin reading verse 36. I'm going to read about 10 verses all the way through verses, uh, uh, verse 46. So let's draw our attention now uh, to the story before us. And Jesus went with them, that is his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It was the Apostle Paul who said that we preach Christ, that is, he and the rest of the apostles, we preach Christ and him crucified. We don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard sermons on Gethsemane before, but if you did, you may have heard a certain take on Gethsemane where the focus sometimes is taken off of Christ, is kind of placed on us, and then the, the, the design of the past, the design of the preacher is to get us into the story and to relate to us and to remind us that upon occasion, in the midst of the difficulties of our lives, we experience our own Gethsemanes. We go into a realm of darkness and we have to pray at that time of darkness, Lord, if it is possible, let this darkness pass from me. However, may your will be done. Not my will, but your will. 
This morning, um, I don't want to discount the truth that we do in some ways experience periods of darkness in our lives, but we do not. We do not experience the kind of darkness that Jesus experiences here in this passage. And you know, that this, 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 this passage probably... Up to this point in Gethsemane, Jesus has never experienced the heaviness and the darkness of his calling and the prospect of his crucifixion more than he does in this garden filled with olive trees where dark storm clouds descend upon Jesus. And we really see nothing of triumph in this passage. All we see is Jesus saying, my soul is grieved. In a sense, this darkness is descending upon me. And the Bible says he became very sad, very, very sorrowful. So there seems to be nothing but darkness. I want to show you something for just a moment. Would you show that, uh, oh, well, you know what? This is so dark, I don't even know if I can explain this very well. I want you to take a look at it anyway. This, comes, uh, this is an old 16th century painting that comes from a Dutch artist named Jan Vermeer. And um, this is, uh, I don't know how well you can see it, but probably because of the light here, that's all right. You see this woman, and this is called the Allegory of Faith. And you see this, this woman that is representative of the church, and her foot is on a globe. And if you look at the Bible, there you go, if you look at the Bible, you can see um, that this probably comes from Revelation chapter 12. It's a passage known as the woman and the dragon. The woman represented of the church, and then I'm going to mention the dragon here pictured as a serpent. But you look at this, and by the way, um, I didn't know this, but I did a little research on Jan Vermeer. He converted to Roman Catholicism at a certain point in time. I don't know exactly what age. but So you have some... Catholic images there. You have a picture of the crucifixion behind this woman. You have a crucifix on the table, and you also have a Bible that appears to be open, representing the word and sacrament ministry of the church. You have the woman who represents the church with a foot on a globe. But the main thing, without going into all the details of this picture, is kids, I don't know if you can see this, but look beneath the feet of the woman at the very bottom. I don't know if you can see that, but actually if it was very clear, you would see a serpent and over that serpent, it looks like a capstone or a cornerstone representing Jesus Christ. So what is this picture all about? The picture, I want to suggest to you, actually captures what is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the mother promise of Genesis 3, verse 15. And if you remember that story, it's in the Garden of Eden, and God pronounces a curse upon the serpent who led Adam and Eve into sin. And he said, I'm going to place enmity, that is hostility, between you and the woman Eve, he's talking to the serpent, and I am going to place enmity between your children, serpent, and her children, which is the church, the children of Eve. And what's going to happen is you are going to bruise the heel of the woman and her children, but ultimately it is he, third person singular, namely Jesus, who is going to crush your head. The point being this, that while Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of the serpent, of the devil, in the Garden of Eden, Jesus Christ, whom the Bible calls the second Adam, will come and he will crush the head of the serpent in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
So that while I began in the introduction speaking about Gethsemane as a place of darkness, actually in the end, what it is, it is a place of triumph. Although when you take a look at the beginning of the story, it doesn't seem that way at all. So let's dive into the story. You find Jesus, after being in the upper room with his disciples celebrating the Lord's Supper, he leaves that place with his disciples and he goes to a place called the Mount of Olives. It's a place outside of Jerusalem that's filled with olive trees. If some of you have ever made trips to Israel, maybe you have gone to that place, and you can picture this in your mind. And there's a place in the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. And Jesus goes with his disciples to Gethsemane, and it's that point that Jesus begins to experience a weight like he's never experienced before. The Bible tells us that the weight that Jesus experienced in Gethsemane was so great that according to the gospel writer Luke, Jesus began to sweat drops like blood. Now whether uh, Luke is using kind of a figure of speech just to say that the, 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 the weight of Jesus was upon Jesus was so great that he began to sweat profusely, or whether he actually began to sweat drops of blood because there is sometimes something that goes on medically where a person could be under such stress that he or she begins to sweat drops of blood. However you take that, the point is, this weight upon Jesus was excruciating as he is contemplating what is about to happen the very next day within 24 hours, which is what? It is his death on the cross. His horrific torturous death on the cross so he's contemplating this so he goes to the garden of gethsemane and among the disciples he takes three disciples the closest ones to him peter james and john and he then he says to them as we read elsewhere he says um I need to go a bit further on. So the Bible says that he goes about a stone's throw length beyond Peter, James, and John, which is about 50 or 60 feet. So the disciples are out here. Then you have Peter, James, and John who go a little bit further with Jesus. And then Jesus says, stay here. And what does he say? He says, watch and pray. And then Jesus goes on into the garden of Gethsemane underneath these olive trees. And what does he do? He falls flat on the ground. And he prays to his, his Father. Now, I want you to notice not only what Jesus prays, but I want you to notice how he prays. Because a lot of times people just kind of skip over that. But Jesus falls to the ground and he falls what we call prostrate, not prostate, prostrate before his Father. So he's lying flat on the ground. I don't know if you've ever prayed that way in your life. Have you ever prayed just flat on the ground, your stomach with your face to the ground? You know, it's rather interesting that the Bible has a lot to say about the posture of prayer. Do you know that? It talks about prayer while, like what we do, what we've done in our worship, prayer while sitting, or the kind of prayer that we offer in our care groups. There's prayer while sitting, there's prayer while standing, there's prayer while kneeling, and there's prayer that is flat out on the ground. And that, that's, that's something for another uh, series, which I hope to do when we continue our catechetical series, uh, looking at the catechism's treatment on prayer, because I want to talk about the posture of prayer sometime, because we don't consider that as much as we should, because it means something. But anyway, without going into that now, Jesus falls flat on the ground, 
and he prays. And he prays this prayer, Father, if it is all possible, let this cup pass from me. And when you read the Gospel of Mark, it's, it's, even, it's even more forceful. Jesus says, Abba, Father, reaching up as close to his Father's heart as possible. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. Now, if you've ever prayed flat out on your stomach, I can about a guarantee that that prayer emanated from probably one of the darkest moments of your life. This was Jesus' darkest moment up to this point. And he's asking that the Father will remove, as he says in his own words, this cup. Now, if somebody asked you, hey, I read this in the Bible and Jesus talks about this cup. And I read that earlier also when Jesus says to his disciples, he poses this question to them. He says, are you able to drink from the cup that I must drink? What does that cup mean? What is that cup? Well, if you would ask a Jewish individual at the time of Jesus what that cup may have represented, um, they probably would have known because they would have been familiar with some of the Old Testament. So what does that cup really refer to? That cup refers to the intense anger, wrath, judgment of God upon human sin and depravity. And, and basic Christian theology tells us that our sin, human sin, was actually placed upon Jesus, so that he bore that weight, and it was up to Jesus to drink the cup of God's judgment against sin. Now, why do I say that? Would you put those passages up from the Old Testament? Take a look at this, but one from Isaiah and the other one from Psalm 75, where we read, wake up, wake up and stand, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his wrath and have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Kids, I read twice, I think, that word dregs. You know what dregs is? Dregs is like if you have a, when, when uh, you have this, the, when the wine is made, Oftentimes what they do is they'll take that fermented grape juice, wine, and they'll pour it through a cheesecloth, and it's like a strainer so that, so that it gets rid of all the sediment from the grapes and all of that. So what you have is just a, a pure glass of wine. But sometimes there is some sediment that gets through that cheesecloth, and what happens, it settles in the bottom. So when we're dealing with the cup of the wrath of God, it's like having that, that wine glass with the dregs at the bottom. It's the sediment at the bottom. And it's Jesus who must drink from that cup of God's wrath and judgment upon human sin. And he must drink it down all the way to the sediment at the very bottom. As we would say today, Jesus had to drink that entire cup of God's wrath and judgment down to the last drop. Not a sip here, not a sip there. But he had to drink the entire cup for us. So that we don't have to drink it. 
And you know, it's, it's enough. It's enough for Jesus just to kind of slowly walk away. Because that weight is on him. It would be natural for him, given that he was human like you and me, to simply walk away from that cup of wrath. And you sometimes wonder, what if he would have done that? And, you know, for uh, a few brief moments... It appeared as if he would. But I want you to listen to that prayer as this weight is descending upon him. Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. And then we read in the text, Jesus says, nevertheless, or some translations have it, yet. Yet, not my will, Father, but thy will be done. And my friends, there is perhaps no more simple and no more beautiful word in this entire story than that little three-letter word, yet. Because it's that little word, yet, that moves us closer to the throne of God than we can ever imagine. Try to imagine this. What would have happened if Jesus would have quit? said, I, I don't want to drink the cup. I mean, do we even dare imagine that? I want you to listen very carefully uh, to one other passage. If you put the other passage from the book of Hebrews... And I want to suggest to you that the citation from the author of Hebrews is relating to what Jesus experienced in Gethsemane. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. Now, in that garden, eternity, and, and I don't think this is an embellishment or an exaggeration, but in the garden of Gethsemane, at that very point where Jesus is praying to his Father, all of eternity and our destinies right here hinged upon that moment of what Jesus would do. He could have been saved, so to speak, from this awful experience. But instead, what we find is Jesus offering that little word, yet, yet not my will, but thy will. What Jesus is really saying is, I come second, and the mission comes first. And what is the mission? The mission is to bring Jesus to Golgotha. The mission is to bring Jesus to the cross. And he said, that's where I'm going. And what is the result of that? The, the, the result of that, according to the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus becomes the source of our salvation. Because in saying that little word yet, in fulfilling the will of his Father, Jesus was undoing what the first Adam did in the Garden of Eden, which was what? It was disobedience. 
Now the second Adam, as the Bible calls Jesus, comes along and he says, I am not following that route. I'm not following that trajectory. What I'm going to do is not fall into tragedy, but I'm going to fall into triumph. And I will obey. And it's on the basis of my obedience that my people will be placed in right standing with God as they embrace me in faith. Now, one other thing. I want you to play around with these two words. What if? What if? What if Jesus would have stepped down and he said, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. What if Jesus, if you were here last week, remember where Jesus interacted with um, with Peter, James, and John. And at one point, Jesus is specifically interacting with Peter. And Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man, in reference to himself, must suffer and die at the hands of godless men and then be raised on the third day. And you remember Peter's response? I touched on this last week. Peter said, Lord, this will never happen to you because he didn't like the idea of Jesus dying. And do you remember Jesus' response? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which means adversary. You are an adversary to me. You are a stumbling block to me because you're not setting your mind on the things of God and the mission, but you're setting your mind on the things of men. All you're concerned about is, is seeing me die and losing me, but you're losing sight of the mission. But imagine what if. What if Jesus said, you know, Peter... I've been thinking about this, and uh, I think I will forego that. I think I won't move on from this point to the cross. Or the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Jesus was transfigured before his disciples, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And Peter was so taken away by this, in seeing heaven descend to earth in the midst of Jesus' suffering, that remember, as we saw last week, Peter said, let's make three tents. I'll make one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and let's just continue to perpetuate this heavenly moment. In other words, he's saying, let's just experience heaven now. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross in order for us to experience heaven because we're experiencing it right now. What if Jesus would have said, you know, Peter, I kind of enjoy this myself. Let's just experience heaven right now. I won't go to the cross. What if, after this event occurs in Gethsemane, what, 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 what if, when, Jesus, when people came to arrest Jesus, what, what if Jesus ran like the rest of his disciples so that he wouldn't have to, to, have to go on trial and eventually be killed on the cross? What if? Oh... What if in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Period. No yet, just period. The truth of the matter is this, that you and I would have experienced everything that Jesus experienced for us on the cross. Pain, Abandonment, the almighty wrath of God, and the judgment of hell. 
And that is not an exaggeration. Can you see why Gethsemane is such a pivotal moment? Yet we find Jesus saying, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And you know what? As you look at Gethsemane, you see that Jesus prays three times. And every time he prays, the prayers grow just a little bit stronger. And from that point on, in obedience, Jesus walks on to the cross. He knows these things. He knows that Peter is going to deny him three times. He knows this. He knows that Judas will betray him. And he knows that very soon he is going to be betrayed by Judas. He is going to be arrested. He's going to go on trial. He's going to be interrogated by Pilate. And eventually nails are going to be driven into his hands and his feet. He's going to be thrown onto the cross, nailed to the cross. And a Roman centurion in time will take a spear and he will thrust it into his side and out will come blood and water. He said yes to all of that. You know what theologians call that? They call it the, when they, when they consider the obedience of Christ's ministry and his life, they call it the active and the passive obedience of Christ. And those are two terms worth knowing. So when we talk about the passive obedience of Christ, we're talking about Jesus willingly and humbly submitting himself to his Father's will and the mission to go on, to go on, to suffer and to die on the cross, the passive obedience of Christ. And we talk about the active obedience of Christ. We're saying Christ, even though it took great effort and great strain, Christ willingly submitted himself to all the requirements of the law and the will of God. And the reason why he submitted himself to that, because not only was it a requirement from his father, but he knew that in order for himself to be a sinless and thus qualified Savior for a sinful people, he needed to do that on our behalf. The active and the passive obedience of Christ. So that in the end, you and I confess it was not Peter, James, and John who provide the example for us that we need. Because when you look at Peter, James, and John, Jesus goes back to them and he says to them, listen, can't you keep watch and can't you keep awake and can't you do something as simply pray for one hour? Can't you do it for one hour? So that when we look at the rest of humanity, at humankind, there is no one in all of humankind who could ever even begin to do what Jesus did for us in Gethsemane. That's why when we get together for worship, we don't focus first and foremost on ourselves. Man, we look up and we see Jesus and Him crucified, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and the one who opens the gates of paradise for all those who embrace not themselves or any other human being, but who embrace Jesus Christ. The obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. So I want to leave you with this. In 1936, and maybe you've heard this name before, there's a man named J. Gresham Machen, who was a pastor, who was a scholar, and who was a seminary president. And it was Machen who was known as Mr. Valiant for Truth. And the reason why he was called that is because he fought against, during the 1920s and 30s, what, we call, what was called at the time modernism, but what is called today is just simply liberalism. 
And this was, this was not a church in, the, in a state of just becoming a little progressive here and a little progressive there when it comes to the theology or worship, whatever. Theological liberalism undercuts the supernatural character of the faith altogether so that what you're left with is not supernaturalism, it's just naturalism. It has nothing to do with the Christian faith whatsoever. And Machen fought humbly, but he also fought tooth and nail for the orthodox Christian faith. And he was well-known, written up in the New York Times, and he was hated by many, but he was also respected by many. Anyway, there was a little church in Carson, North Dakota, that asked if Machen would come out and he would preach for them. Carson's a little dot in the map, and if you go out into the country, it's just a little white church, and probably maybe at that time 50, 60, 70 members. It was a very small church. And they asked him to come and preach for them. This is like asking a celebrity. And Machen, being the man that he was, he could have easily said, you know what, I have a lot on my plate, there are many battles to be fought, um, I have, in a sense, bigger fish to fry, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. You know, a lot of pastors would do that. But he said, no, I'm gonna min these people have asked me, I'm going to minister to them. So he took a train all the way from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to Carson, North Dakota, in January, the coldest month. And he got to that little church and he led worship services, but he did so in a weakened state because of all the battles he was facing. And he caught pneumonia. And he was transferred to a hospital in Bismarck, North Dakota. And I think it was age 54 or 55 he died. Died away from all the people that he knew back on the East Coast. He died in relative humble circumstances And before he died, there's a man who visited him named Sam Allison. And Machen said to him before he died, he said, Sam, I received a vision of heaven. It was glorious. It was glorious. And then one other thing he did before he died, he sent a telegram to a colleague named John Murray back at uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and it simply read this. And this is what he's known for on his deathbed. He said, the active obedience of Christ, period. No hope without it, period. Machen's words, I mean, they were more than just a confession of faith. They were the realization of a dying man that all of his theology, all of his life's work, indeed, eternity itself hinged upon that little word yet in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's that little word yet I want to leave you with this morning. And may you and I, every one of us, also cling to that word yet, and above all, cling to Jesus Christ himself. The tragedy, but also the triumph of the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what we consider this morning. And when we return for our Good Friday service, may we gather around together to commemorate but also celebrate the obedience of Christ for us, ultimately culminating on the cross. Okay? Let's come to the Lord and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus, your Son, your one and only Son, into this world so that in submitting to your will, 
and obeying all the demands of your will and your laws upon him, he may become the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, we pray that we may think about these things, that we may embrace this Jesus and his act of obedience, because we have in the end no real obedience and consistent obedience on our own. And we pray when we gather together for our Good Friday service, we may rejoice in that obedience and that ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. God bless us this Good Friday and then really lift our spirits, we pray, as we celebrate the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ on our Easter service, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.